Hello, and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast with Han Vanderhart, episode three with the poet Tom Snarsky. Tom Snarsky is a math teacher who writes poems. He is a former Robert Noyce teaching fellow at Tufts University and a senior fellow at the Knowles Teacher Initiative. He is the author of two books, forthcoming from Broken Sleep in 2022, Speaking Roles, a collection of poetry interviews, and Complete Sentences, a pamphlet of poems about teaching. He is also the author of The Chapbook Threshold, published in 2018 by Another New Calligraphy. In addition to his work in print, several of Tom's chapbooks and pamphlets can be found online as free PDFs. Number Among, Epigraph, Weekend, The Argonatist Online, 21 Small Poems, Bin Bag Press, Minimal Sonnets with Joe Iani, Ghost City Press, The Pamphlet Two Songs, Fathomsome Press, the self-published two notebook poems, and With Sorrow as My Window and Forgiveness as My Shield, one of the winners of the Boston Uncommon Chapbook Contest at Boston Accent Lit. Along with Kristen Garth, he's the co-organizer of Performance Anxiety, a monthly online poetry reading series. He teaches at Lightridge High School in Aldi, Virginia, and lives in Bluemont with his wife, Christy, who all this is for. Thank you, Tom, for being here and welcome. Thank you so much, Han. It's such a privilege to be here and be part of what Huff Poetry is doing. I'm, I'm so excited. I am too. I, I kind of had no idea where our conversation is go, going to go because we have such a different backgrounds and interests in many ways. Um, and that makes me really excited. Would you like to begin with reading a poem? I would love to. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read a poem from Light Up Swan, uh, and it's titled Gospel of Thomas. Um, so I'll just go right into it. Gospel of Thomas. I'm reading the Wikipedia page for, ang for angels. You do not appear on it yet. Like waiting for the fern to flower, holding the sumac away from your eyes. In the goat's jaws, in the lowland so that the goat's jaws will protect you from the secret obvious mistake of hitting someone mid-run of the goat simulator while the devil goat mutator is applied. If you can refrain from hitting anyone for 300 seconds, you'll unlock the angel goat mutator, jump very high, make all the right acting choices in real time with no notes. Angels are not omniscient, but they can get to robot goat and make the game bug a lot by put too sick many. Azazel excusing all your mistakes. Goats will seek shelter more readily than sheep. The lamb of God doesn't like to wet its feet, but in the middle of their upland grazing, humility rings out like an unexpected bell. Thank you. There are so many places we could go with um, talking about the work that your your poetry is interested in, um, talking about how it does its work. Um, but anytime I feel like anytime I bring up the word work, I also want to bring up the word play. Um, and in your work, that's from everything from neologisms to kind of a meta transparency, read the writing process to video and computer games. And I also, of course, think about what writing a poem is like for you and how play comes into that. Um, 
but I'd love to just start by talking a little bit about your poem, The Gospel of Thomas, which um, I, I, went, I went to you to talk about it before I say anything. You know a little bit about my family's reaction to this poem. Yeah, I, I, I remember really vividly, like in, I don't know, it was probably like 2013 or 12 or, or something when I was like just getting into poetry. And I listened to Ben Mirov, who's one of my favorite poets reading um, at a live event. And one of the lines in one of the poems that he read uh, which was part of a series that came out in uh, in Ghost Machines, which is a great book. Um, it's it has this recurring line, "Space Invaders" at three a.m. And I just remembered, like you know, something just, and I was like, ah, video games are parts of poems too, or are parts of the machinery of poems for for people for whom they work. And you know, I, I think that I found myself a lot for whatever reason, like going back to um, video games and other sort of like I think they feel a little bit like creature comforts um, for for like. For example, me and my friends, like especially during the beginning of the pandemic, I found myself going back to these games that I hadn't played in like years and years. Like one one MMO that I played a lot when I was younger was uh, Guild Wars, which is like pretty. It's a it's a pretty old game now, and there's a sequel that many more people play than the original game. Um, you know, my friends and I would pop on it and we would just like spend hours, you know, doing stuff that we had done many many times before, etc. Um, and I think it's so interesting that that like the way that nostalgia feels kind of enabling, like in a, in a vaporwave kind of sense, I guess, but also in a sense of like, you know, this is a kind of world I can almost skim a poem off of like the surface of a pond in some some kind of way, I think. And I know yeah. that, uh, you know, I know that the uh, the context of this particular poem, which is the goat simulator, <laughs> um, was not a stranger to you <laughs> at all. No. In in fact, when I was reading Light Up Swan for the first time, I was on the couch and my children were nearby as usual. Um, and as soon as I got into the poem, I was wondering at what point I realized it what like if you had to, the line, if it actually was the goat simulator. I think the devil goat would have given it away to me. Um, but I just stopped and I just laughed and I like read it to my children and they thought it was amazing because they didn't even know about this, first of all. And in fact, I have been informed that it's not possible on an iPad. It's only in a computer version. Um, <laughs> but they tried. They, my my six-year-old tried to, you know, not hit anyone for 300 seconds. So he really did try. <laughs> um, but then when my partner walked into the room and um, they were getting frustrated at this point that you know, the 300s, it wasn't working. So I read the section from the poem again as instructions to them. And my partner thought I was joking and making up a poem. And I was like, no, I'm actually reading a poem. Uh, and they were like, what? And they came over and read it. And I think it's just wonderful because it just reminds you that poetry can be really surprising. Poetry can be about things you don't expect it to be about. It can be about these really common texts that we, like everyone in our room knew about Goat Simulator half the time because I'm like, please don't be slug goat or whatever that one is. Like, it's just disgusting. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it just really gets home, you know, to the idea of play and video games are such, you know, beautiful fantasy worlds for thinking about, you know, world building and, and how we think about narrative. And I think about that with D&D &D a lot too, um, how we build narratives and how we think about it in terms of play. I think that's so beautiful that, that um, you know, it was like, I think you're making this up, but it's like, no, I'm reading it. Like, there's, I, I love that moment when either like you yourself have this experience or I, I shared a poem recently 
uh, with a friend and they like you know, sent me back some of the lines, not a poem I had written. It was actually another Ben Miroff poem as it were, one of the ones that came out recently at a, I think it's Iterant Mag from the Ruth Stone House. And like the first response was, oh, I wish I had written these lines uh, from this poem childhood. And I, I think there's like that really beautiful moment, um, especially when you find like a writer who feels like they're they're speaking in a way that like has only been happening between your years for a very long time. And like, you know that it's a little hubristic to think that you could have written it, but also you're like, no, this this is so consonant. Um, it's like that uh, that new-ish uh, Lisa Robertson novel where the the um, protagonist, I think it's the Baudelaire fractal, like wakes up having written the complete works of Baudelaire. It's like sometimes it is just that simple, you know, like it's yeah. that level of identification or resonance or I don't know what what word really captures that like yep that you feel. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think about that with reading um, Duck's Newbury Port by Lucy Elman this summer. That, that, you know, that way that someone's sentences can sweep you up and you can imagine it. I feel that way with Diane Seuss's um, Frank Sonnets as well. There's something about um, a poetics or a process or a form that gets really close to the bone that way. Like it's just so, it's both like so well written and so there's something about like if, the reading feels like the writing. I don't know. And that's, you know, a fantasy to say as a reader, but I think being able to participate in that fantasy is, you know, part of why we read. Yeah. Dr. Newburyport was the only book that came with me uh, on our honeymoon oh, when we, yeah. when we went and I just remember, yeah, like you're, I think that's an interesting thing about um, thinking a little bit recently about like long poems, um, especially because long poems and novels kind of sit in the same like just time commitment realm for for me and like the way they have the way they work with texture feels so different to me. Um, and like some of the long poems that I really, really love are, are actually like not that long they're not novel length by any stretch of the imagination. Um, like one of my favorite poems ever is, is um, Kate Kilalea's poem, Henniker's Ditch, which I have like a, a longstanding love relationship with. Um, but like that poem I think is only, you know, six or some odd pages, but like, it feels like reading it and and kind of learning about the way that Kilalea put the poem together. Like Kilalea was undergoing, I think, uh, psychoanalysis at the time and talked about kind of picking out these very, very concrete details from like lived experience and just very, very slowly accreting them into what eventually became the poem. And to me, there's like that interesting parallel with, with Duck's Newburyport, which is like fantastically, you know, like take that at warp speed almost, you know, it's still very, it's so concrete and it's so, but it's also so like just dynamic and moving in and among all these different registers all the time. Uh, and you come out of, I think, whether it's Seneca's Ditch or Duck's Newburyport or what have you, um, those kind of reading experiences with like the shape of your, I guess, elocution or, or your, your, compositional voice sometimes like I, th I think really changed you know like I think you you whether or not you want to you know that that great bishop quote of like the poem everything looking like that poem for 24 hours or everything looking like you know the cherry pie for 24 hours or something like that yes um yeah that's really interesting Doug's new report so powerful I think all the time I mean there's some repetitions in that book and just when you have that amount of space and time and you know the reading becomes so much more like a relationship I read in an interview Lucy Elman said that you know oh most novels take 
a week to read. So this is about three or four times as long as the normal novel. So it should take you about four weeks. Um, and I think it took me more like six to eight weeks. Um, but it's so powerful to live with a book like that. Um, and I think about those lines, you know, about her mother's death, like, you know, I'm broken, it broke me like over. I just think about those lines all the time and like what it means to actually honor something that you know affected you that deeply in that way, you know, throughout all the busyness, throughout everything else to return to that as a touchstone. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant book. I'm so glad I won a big prize. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I love, this is maybe casting a, a bit of a wide net, but like, I, I love that book's anaphora. Like, I love the fact that, and I love the way it feels to say the fact that, and I love the way that, like, some of my favorite poetics ever are are very incantatory mm -hmm. and very anaphoric. And like, like my, I, I was lucky when I was in school, I was at Tufts and I, I took when that was when Ariana Rines was there for a semester. So she was my my one and only poetry teacher there, which was kind of a missed opportunity on my part. I never got to like take Katie Peterson's classes or Natalie Shapiro's, uh, who I got to interview for the Broken Sleep book. But but Ariana's poetics is very much one like that for me, like just, you know, the way in um, in some of her work, like the the refrains become you can feel them like developing this very mercurial like intentionally on purpose charge uh, and I think that like one of the ways that this feels really interesting to me is like the the repetition is sometimes like when I was talking to Joe who who um who worked on the minimal sonnets book with or, or a project with me and who's a wonderful poet whose work I, I love getting to read in draft form about like the the way that some of these repeated processes can be uh, metabolic or catabolic and catabolic catabolism was, was a new thing for me, but like the idea of integrating, like, for example, a food or a repeated process in a metabolic way or catabolically, like breaking it down, um, you know, and like, he, I, I, Joe has this really beautiful theory that I, I feel like I'm not going to do justice to here and now, like about the, the sort of way all of uh, this work that we do in poetics can be culinarily paraphrased. And I think it's a, a very important thing. Um, but I also think that there's a a link to that idea when it comes to like the the grief moment in Duck's New Report that you mentioned. Like one of the novels that I remember reading super early on that like completely like fucked up every sense of what I thought books could do was um, the Lerhavismont de Lolvestein, the Ravishing of Lolstein, the Dura book. And in that book, there's one event that happens, and that's it's really like the entirety of like it is, you know, John Anderson has this line, it's like a single terrible event from which to measure time. And like the book is so much about sitting in that and not in necessarily that sort of anaphoric way that I think um, that Elman's doing in, in Ducks New Report, but still like the, the way that the reader is viscerally placed into this space of repeated grief, re repeated catabolism. Um, and then as a reader, like you kind of have no choice but to metabolize that and how you do that will be so, it'll shape, like your shaping of that will shape you too in, in these really huge ways. Yes, it makes me think of that Ann Carson quote about how time is a, is a local and intimate fact um, for like not only just a person, but you know, for whole people, like what you arrange your time around. And I mean, right now we're in this weird pandemic time, which is so different. I was like an Anglican for a little while, and like the, 
where I attended an Anglican church for a while. And so, um, you know, the holy time and then the you know, sacred time and ordinary time, um, those things are things that you mark really conscientiously. And right now I just feel like we just have this overwhelming pandemic time um, in many ways, but it's really interesting how text mark they still, some, every text marks its time in, in local intimate ways. And you have to kind of, as a poetry reader, always be alert to those and just like attending to how, because they're not, I think Ducks Newburyport can be kind of like generous in that way. And I feel like things are often more subtle. Um, it makes, in poetry, I would love to hear, um, so you've mentioned one poem, it's one of your favorite long poems. Um, Right away, I think of for me, and now I'm like, oh, are they only men? Um, I think of Paradise Lost by John Milton. Um, I think of John Ashbery's self-portrait in a convex mirror, which the first time I ever saw was in a used bookstore called BJ's Books. It's in my hometown. And I remember seeing the cover and it's just such, it just exudes. I was like such a sheltered child and it exudes such sex and and like rock and roll and I remember looking at it and just thinking it was like obscene and I like put it back on the shelf and was like oh like I remember there were a bunch of copies like some obviously some local class that used them um and so like coming back to it and like having done a PhD in 17th century and I go back to that poem and it just it like broke up my world it was incredible and like you could reach a text at a bad time in your life. It's like not the right time for you in that text. And then you find it later and it's the perfect time. Um, anyways, that's a long way of saying, you know, you can find your long poems at different times in your life. And that's one of my favorites. I'd love to hear from you though. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is going in a little bit of a different direction, but I, I'm vividly recalling like, you know, I, I listened to just a lot of music in high school. I don't do it as much as I would like to anymore, but I remember um, one of my favorite albums by Animal Collective is uh, Strawberry Jam, which has uh, that centerpiece of it is uh, for Reverend Green, which is like for Reverend Green. But of course, when A.B. Tear is doing it, it sounds like forever in green, green being such a big color. Like I, I live in Noel Cocott's poetic world a lot, which is a very green world. Um, and I remember listening to that album and getting to the middle part of Forever in Green where Avery Terra is really losing it on just that line, which is so, you know, I've, I've said all this stuff about, I love incantatory poetics, et cetera. And I turned it off, I was like, who would listen to this crazy person yelling forever? Like I was just so high and mighty in my, you know, 15 year old infinite wisdom, like I know this is bad. And then of course, you know, you come back to it and that album has lines like, um, I'm a pelican at red tide, I'm a corpse, I'm not a fisherman, which is just so, friggin good and like you know I dismissed it at the time and then like you said it comes back um and I just think like it's so interesting you know that this is a bit of a jump because but I think it's not so much a jump because Ashbery is obviously doing it with Primer Janino in self-portrait and and I'm definitely stuck with it with music in the book but like I love when poetry uh, leans a little bit or rub shoulders with other art forms um and I would I would love to turn the tables a little bit like I know that one art for, I feel like I know that one art form that has informed your work a lot is uh, photography. And, and like, I was looking at the poem in your book um, that's after, oh gosh, uh, it's after Deborah Luster, who I only knew about because of the um, battlefields where the moon says, I love you cover uh, that, which I think is a photograph of hers. Is that right? Um, I didn't maybe. know if that's so, but that's amazing. Wow. Because she links CD Wright and Frank Stanford, right? 
Yeah. And I would just love to hear about, because like I, I am stuck in music for so much of the book and like, it feels like, like I'm writing through songs that are stuck in my head, et cetera. And like, for you, like, I know that you've, t you've talked about like the photographs of Sally Mann and, and also Deborah Lester definitely like, I'm kind of curious what it feels like for you to lean with or, or jump off from like these photographs in poems. Oh, thank you for that. Um, first of all, I have to say, I love the music in um, Light Up Swan. And it, that's not something I, I don't feel like I see that a lot. I mean, first of all, I think it could be tricky to write about music sometimes. I mean, I know poets really want to drop lyrics. A lot of times the go-to move is like, let's drop a lyric line. And then it turns out, oh, that's expensive. Or I don't have permissions for that. And so like, it's it can be a bit of a trick to write about music, right? And I feel like um, visual art just really um, something that lately I'm letting myself do as much as I want. Uh, I think permission's really hard to give yourself, but um, I have a completed manuscript. I, I consider what become like kind of a difficult thing to write. And then Lark's is kind of on the difficult side. And so for this next manuscript, the third, I just told myself like, you can write about art as much as you want, Hannah. You can't do too much, like just do it. Um, and there's some really fun, I mean, Eudora Welty's photograph of the Windsor Runes in Mississippi. I've just spent time writing about um, that one or, um, um, Emmett Gower, who's really important to the work of Sally Mann. He did this beautiful portrait of his wife peeing in a barn, um, <laughs> which is amazing. I love it so much. Um, it's just incredible. I have a really small poem about that. Um, yeah, so it's uh, phot photography. I really love um, portraits, sure. I really love. I feel like that's when I've tipped into like my old person self is that I used to think portraiture was really boring. And now I'm like, oh, portraiture is fascinating um <laughs> and it's you know it's sad that you can do an entire phd in early modernism in renaissance literature and basically have no contact with renaissance art in many ways not visual culture you know you end up doing a lot of like trauma or whatever but um there's so much amazing art it's very sad that we're not more readily interdisciplinary in like how we engage with art historians and so you know you, you can do it but you kind of have to volunteer yourself to be in those spaces um and pursue it and you have so many other things to do um but yeah it's it's so much fun it's like just a joy um and I think Diane Seuss really brought me back to ekphrasis in a way I used to think ekphrastic poems were old-fashioned or like they were what really temperate older women poets did or something. Like I remember I had a book of, um, oh, who's that beautiful, uh, oh, Vermeer. It was all about like Vermeer's light. And so it's all these like Dutch paintings. And so, you know, it seems like very like safe. And, um, and Diane Seuss showed me that they weren't, it wasn't safe to write ekphrasis. And I think that's when it really became exciting for me again. Um, yeah, that's so I, I feel I felt like such a latecomer to Diane Seuss's work. And I, I loved your review of the sonnets, like the the way like I, I came to I remember buying um, Still Life with Two Dead Peacocks and a girl in a train station on the way to somewhere that I don't even know where. But like, what a great way to just because I sat with that and I'm pretty sure I didn't charge my phone or something. So it was just like that book for and I'm usually like, you know, you'll know, no one will be able to see this except you, but like, I'm usually such a stack oriented reader. Like I tend not to 
sit and like the Sealy challenge, which we're in the middle of right now is actually really nice for this because it gives space to like sit with one thing. Um, and I remember feeling the density of, of that book, like, like I had sort of come to very slowly know, like, I, I don't consider myself super visually art literate all the time, but, but, you know, the, the ability to sit with something for a while and, and really let it just kind of <laughs> almost lacerate you. It feels like sometimes, like I, I uh, tried to get into more of like spending time on long exposures with paintings, like just just giving them a lot of time and seeing what happens. Um, actually, when the Deleuze group I'm in, we've been in, had like a reading group that was originally based out of Boston, like started when I was an undergrad, like back in 2014 or so. And um, eventually we were, I think we never actually did it, but we were going to read the Bacon book, the Deleuze book on Bacon and the line and intensities and stuff. And I was like, I should really learn about this Francis Bacon character. Um, and that like, that also was a, a very strange, like I'm really, I'm really in love with like visual artists and, and visual art media that, that do motion and stillness in interesting ways. Like I've, I loved Candace Wheelie's book um, that was in dialogue with Francesca Woodman, um, the death industrial complex book. That book is amazing. And I just think like, that's one of those great paradoxes of photography, sort of like it's a great paradox of the poem, right? Like how to, you know, the living thing is there. Um, Carl Luva Kanuskar has one essay that's about this, like the picture of the plane um, flying and like what happens when you have this totally false photograph that also gives you all the feelings of a, a flying plane. Like what are we supposed to do with that? And poetry feels like it faces a very similar problem, right? Like how to conjugate the linear time of line after line, which is not every poem for sure, but like very often it's that with the huge, um, I think it was Jack Underwood calls it like the scopics of poems. Like they can microscope in, they can telescope out, they can do all this stuff, but they're still line to line to line. And it, it's that conjugation of times that is like deeply dizzying, um, like a bacon line, you know, you never know what it's doing. Is it still, is it moving? I don't know. One of the coolest things I know about bacon, um, you know, he, he was Thomas Hobbes secretary. Um, and apparently he was, very witty at the dinner table. So um, I had a professor at Duke, Julian Whirlin, who wrote an article in the PMLA about Bacon, um, and it's beautiful. Um, but one of the things she talks about is how he was kind of an early form of kind of new media. And so he would say really funny things and they think his friends would write them down on tiny strips of paper and pass them around the whole table. And so it was kind of like the earliest form of Twitter, <laughs> uh, which is just so funny to me. I just love it. I love thinking about that. And also just, I don't know, the beautiful labor of writing down something your friend said and then like passing it around so everyone can see. Like that's the perfect dinner party, you know? Um, what I what I love about this moment is I think we've created a fault here because I think because I think I, I'm talking about Francis Bacon Irish painter yeah, um, totally. and you're talking about Francis Bacon empiricists and now we're both talking about a, an amazing person <laughs> who has had this like total like sense of this is so cool and I don't understand what he's doing or in my case since I don't understand what he's doing in your case it's like this is prefiguring something I'm doing and here like Francis totally. Bacon the the name twins are happening yeah I think we had a little wrinkle in time there but it's very cool <laughs> I'm always I mean I I think I had a student comment uh, this summer that like I love the way Professor Vanderhart will admit when she doesn't know something um which 
made me feel a little better but that's something I'll always be open to like I don't know that um I don't know let's look that up like with my kids um there's so much to know and I do not have the best memory um but that's amazing I definitely just mapped that on to my Francis Bacon who I think of um that's hilarious um <laughs> I, think, I think that's good like I one of my things that this book and uh, you know the poem that I read in the beginning is definitely working through is like Thomas as a as a name means means twin and and it's a, a definite like you know the draw towards the doubling effect um which ended up being a big organizing principle for the book too like just trying to to track those doubles a little bit because organizing a poetry manuscript is impossible um, I find but like you know, one of, one of the things that also pops up in the book a little bit and that I'd be curious to hear about about you because I, I had to do some Googling and Wikipediaing to know about this for me is like um, birthday twins. So people who have the same birthday as you, um, especially if they're poets, because I, I have a lot of fun birthday twins like um, Spinoza is in the book, Schnitka is in the book very temporarily and um, Lawrence Stern is in the book. Uh, they're all birthday twins. And then the only poetry birthday twin I know about is Paul Blackburn, you know, uh, poet, translator, extraordinaire, um, very interesting character. And like, it felt like they were watching me, you know, in some sense, kind of while this book was happening, because not for any, like, you know, I, I definitely think it's a, it, it might be more of a, just because of this, like, because of this particular wrinkle, right? Like what, what happens when we take this wrinkle and, and run with it, you know? And I'm wondering like, do you know who your, who your poetry or otherwise birthday twins are? I don't know if this is a thing that like anyone else would Wikipedia oh. on a random day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, I know events, some events that happened on my birthday. Um, Mount St. Helens erupted. Napoleon Bonaparte was emperor <laughs> um may 18th but i don't know birthday twins i'll have to look this up now i'm curious um of course i'm a, I'm a taurus so i always love that you know Cher is a taurus and shakespeare's a taurus and um and so on what's your sign tom uh, i'm a sagittarius oh, right. uh, christy says I'm, I'm not a very good one <laughs> but that is that is to be known by by people. I, Ariana um, Ryan's, in addition to being a really wonderful poet who I admire a lot and whose work I love deeply, is also a, a trained astrologer. And so a lot of the poets we were like we read. Um, I still remember reading like Stuart Krimko's work um, with her. Like the they kind of did the Malamar editions thing. That was I think how Coeur de Leon was first published uh, in this like pretty limited run, just kind of getting passed around. And, and Stuart Krimko had a book or two from Malamar, I think just maybe one, but Krimko is also an astrologer um, and wrote a lot of poems like in couplets. Like he has a book called uh, The Sweetness of Herbert, which is like a, a totally a George Herbert. Like George Herbert is just so in the air. Like I read uh, the Aaron Kunin book on Love Three and I was like, wow, this is, we are all in, in it's Herbert's world. We're just living in it, you know, like the divine love, something like that. But like that, that to me, you know, it's like one of, because I, I think it's a very deeply astrological impulse to want to know your birthday twins, right? Like, I, I am definitely not an expert in astrology by any means, but like owning that we're doing something like funny with the stars when we want to do something like that. And, you know, that is kind of what shapes that move or that gesture for, for even the astrologically illiterate among us. Yeah. Now I definitely, okay, 
No, I definitely need to look that up. Um, you just used the word in vogue. And I follow the Twitter account Haggard Hawks, which does like the cool words. And, um, and I saw this today and I thought of you because I know you like the Francophone poets. Um, and I don't speak French, so I'm probably going to say this incorrectly, but it's just talking about the etymology of the word vogue and that it comes from voguerre, a French verb meaning to row or sail a boat. In allusion to a vessel being piloted through the water, it later came to mean a successful course than anything it takes first to lead position and finally the leading or most popular trend. But I, I love that etymology. And I was kind of curious if you thought, if you had thoughts on poetry as being a boat. <laughs> poetry as a boat, I love that. I, this is totally sort of dodging your question, but like since Deleuze has <laughs> popped up, there's this really beautiful part, I think it's in Difference and Repetition, where Deleuze talks about like what it's like to learn um, and how learning and education, like for example, you know, when you have a, a student who's learning a new idea, um, they tend to say stuff that isn't just like, you know, binarily true or false wrong. They say things that just like in his formulation at this point, because he hasn't written the logic of sense yet, he says like, they just don't make sense. Like it's that they're trying to use these expressive tools that they have. And there's just not even like the channels for it to flow near the thing, right? And, and the figure that he uses for that sense-making process is a swimmer in a wave. And he says like, well, what, is, what does a swimmer do in a wave? Either they get completely knocked over by it or they kind of try stuff with their arms, hands, legs, body, et cetera, and try to move with the wave and conjugate, like that's that word conjugate again, conjugate themselves with the wave. Um, and that's kind of what the learning process is. It's this like experimenting with sense-making until suddenly I'm with the wave now, right? And I can use it to, for example, propel myself forward or, you know, I can ride it and do different stuff than I could do before. Um, and I, I love that quote because Deleuze is not always the most straightforwardly applicable person for a math teacher all the time. But like that moment, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, like that's totally what happens. Because, you know, students will write things on their papers that on first blush don't make sense. But on the second blush, you're like, this is what a set of tools applied to a problem that is not like necessarily like Deleuze calls them true problems, right? It's not a true problem for this person yet. Um, and it might be a question of their positioning. It might be a question of the way the problem is posed, which I think is very legit um, and helps think about how we teach and how we can pose those problems in a truer way. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I think there's something to be said, like your, I dodged your question because your question was about poetry, but like, I think there's, there's a lot about this idea of you know, when we're, when we're faced with all these waves and undulations, um, whether they're in, you know, contemporary poetry and how it functions or, or the learning process or anything, like we, our sense-making ways of do, dealing with that are so often like just these trials um, and they're very bodily. Like, I love that image because I really feel it. Um, and, and like the figuring out is a bodily experience too, especially when you're figuring your way through a poem, right? Yes. No, I love that quote. Um, Deleuze is someone I've avoided, which is probably why I didn't pick up on the Francis Bacon thing. And also, um, I, you know, it's it's like, I think that there's a lot of permission, like <laughs> I do feel smart enough to read this text. And it's one of those, I'm like, I don't think so. So <laughs> I've avoided, uh, but that's a beautiful, beautiful quote. And um, one of my feelings, especially as a young, like in, in college, um, is that when I learned something, I would often feel really angry. 
if I learn something really deeply and yeah, I'm a Taurus, but like a sun moon Taurus. Um, but I, I feel so much anger because I was having to change something about myself. Um, and I've learned to like how to deal with that or, you know, approach like, be like, we're open to the fact that you're wrong or, you know, you don't understand the whole issue or, um, but it also makes me think about how difficult it is just to learn to ask good questions. And, you know, that's what a lot of times teachers say like, oh, like, you know, ask your question, but learning how to formulate a question is, is difficult. Like I love the idea of the troughs um, and you use the word undulations, which for me always brings up um, <laughs> throwback on C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters and the Law of Undulations. Um, I taught that book in a devil in literature class and I love the law of undulations that humans like, oh, just catch a human at a terrible time. Like they will go up and they will go down. Just catch them when they're down because it will come. It will come. <laughs> and it's true. That's uh, like the truest part about this book. Um, but yes, from from devil goat to screw tape, we've, we've done that little that little circuit. Um, I just wanted to throw in a quote from uh, one of the books that I, I don't even think I've like faced how much that this book like took the top of my head off, but like uh, Scott McClanahan's The Sarah Book, there's that moment in it where it's like, are you happy now? No, well then just wait. And it's like that moment is just, yeah, it's like, wow, the the perdurance of, you know, and I, I think like, I guess while while you were talking, I sort of thought about the, the way in which like, because I, I thought it was interesting that you said like, oh, am I smart enough to read Deleuze? And I'm like, anyone is smart enough to pretend to have read Liz, which is what I did when I didn't do the readings when I, we had our meetings on Fridays and I was an undergrad and I would just show up and be like yes the smart people will it will sponge or something you know like and I just think like there's so much with difficult like quote-unquote difficult text of just like being with the text long enough where it's almost like the difficulty becomes like beside the point or something. Cause I like, I still, you know, I've read, we've been reading Deleuze in this group since, you know, for seven years or something like that. And I still, sometimes I'm like, mm, I have no idea where this particular piece is coming from or why, or like, you know, that, that weird thing that like 20th century philosophers do where they're clearly writing about somebody and like writing in, in conversation with somebody or against somebody, but not citing them. And it's just like, Oh, you know, what would I tell my students never to do that? You know, that kind of a thing. But, but like, I do think, cause that's to throw it back to Henniker's ditch for a second, like that, like Kilalea in an, I think it's an interview describes like that poem as just like accreting kind of through that continued, like, I think she said something like she tried, she tried to really, really not have like a, a compositional hand in it. Like when she was looking back, cause it's, it's a poem that's like not in a book of hers. It's it, her first book, One Eyed Lee came out. And then this poem sort of came together super slowly um, I think it took like months, a year or something like that. Um, like I could be getting that detail wrong, but it was so interesting to me that it was just like, I'm just going to sit with these pieces and so slowly they're going to like magnetize or they're going to do this thing. And it, it feels like difficult texts do that with like little bits of understanding. Like this is one of my favorite, I know it's not translating well to the podcast medium, but in ASL, there's like the sign for understand with your forefinger. And then if you like kind of understand you can use the pinky to be like little my my old asl teacher in uh, massachusetts would use that a lot when we would watch videos by deaf signers and he'd be like mm, kind of knew that we were like here with the pinky instead of here with the forefinger yeah that's so good and thank you for describing that um, for listeners um since math has come up this is something um i would love to know if there are any math secrets you want to share about 
light up swan um if there are math jokes that maybe someone who's not superbly into math that might miss um or if there's just something fun or i mean because i know there is right um i know that's of interest to you yeah i i definitely i love math and i i've gotten to talk with some people who are sort of doing the similar straddling thing like um one of what like one of the people who I, I love the work that he's done for for the poetry community and just in general um, is Giacomo Pope, who runs Neutral Spaces, and he is a, a physics PhD and a mathematician um, of no small renown, for my in my opinion. Um, and he talks like he and I have talked about like what it can be like when you put math in poems, because sometimes it I think to go back to that Deleuze idea of like a true problem, right? Sometimes it can feel like you're putting the math or the something in a poem as a prop, like pretty pretty clearly and and that propness can I think sometimes feel either distracting or like you're not doing the thing justice in some sense but um, there's definitely like a poem in Light Up Swan that had been through a few different titles it was first just called Poem and then it got called Eden later um, that is kind of built on some of these ideas from like cellular automata theory so like John Conway's Game of Life is one of the biggest most famous versions of this cellular automaton, these like little finite state things that have rules for how they go from one state to another. And you can like watch them grow or, or compress and they can, they as systems can like live and die. Um, and there's this theorem uh, in that, in cellular automata theorem, theory called uh, the Garden of Eden theorem. And it like the statement of the theorem maybe is not super important, but the idea is that you can replace the idea of looking for like a garden of Eden state, which is a state that couldn't have come, that nothing could have come before it, according to the rules of the system. You can replace looking for those, which are very hard to look for because you have to like see if anything could have come before it um, or it has any predecessor states. You can replace that by looking for twins. So those are states that could have come from, I think they like could have been from the same predecessor state together. So like twins, looking for twins, what this theorem says is the same as looking for a garden of Eden. And like, I don't think I need to say any more to know that that's like a, the poet can take it, run with it, you know, you know, slam it down at the end of the end zone and be like, all right, let's go with that. Um, but there's a lot of that. Like, I think it's really beautiful how mathematicians kind of do this. Like there's a, there's this beautiful, like very, idea that I can't remember even what it's about in algebraic geometry that uh, Alexander Grotendieck, who was this very interesting and um, idiosyncratic mathematician who was stateless at the end of his life, like he had renounced his French citizenship. He called them uh, dessins d'enfants, like scribblings of children or like children's drawings, which were just these like little theoretical objects he was using. There's like the sunflower lemma. I'm just thinking of ones that I've like written in my phone notes that like people, just these beautiful things that came out of mathematicians doing something totally different and not necessarily thinking about the language as language, but still creating these beautiful artifacts somehow, just like children do, you know? Mathematicians yes. are very good children, I think. <laughs> yes, and it makes me just think about, you know, poetry gets to be this, um, this way place, like this crossroads of language from so many different, you know, as many different disciplines or fields as you want to think about. Um, I was just finishing The Life of Poetry by Muriel Ruckheiser and the, you know, the way at one point she's like, 
okay, whether you're talking about a mathematician or a musician or a poet at this point, it doesn't matter. We're talking about the same, we're talking about the arrangement of things. We're talking about how, and it just, it was this beautiful moment. I remember putting a little tick mark being like, oh, Tom would like this. <laughs> um, and she did a lot of work, right? Like she wrote a whole biography, I believe, on a mathematician or a scientist, Gibbs. Um, and, and was kind of discredited as a, a woman and a poet for doing that. In fact, um, a pretty horrific comment someone made to her, I, I think from the science community, they said it was about as inappropriate as a black person writing about a Southern gentleman. Yeah, they used a different term, but, um, not the worst term, but I was just, I mean, my jaw just dropped open. Like, you know, now we just, you know, we think, oh, if you want to write a biography or you want to do that work, like do it, like just go. And, you know, of course I speak that from having certain institutional privileges, but a lot of times there's a lot of open access sources and people really willing to help. But just to see how that's changed. And I mean, it's been 70 years since she wrote that book, right? So um, it's pretty shocking, pretty shocking. Yeah, I was thinking about what you're saying about poetry being at the being the sort of point of confluence of many different discourses. And I was I was in a training earlier this summer because I'll be I'll be teaching statistics for the first time in the fall. I've never taught a statistics course. And one of the great things the workshop leader said that I thought was really good was like, if you're a statistician, you get to play in everybody's sandbox because you you like you can get data from anywhere and say something about any kind of data that could be, you know, a, a statistics question could be about, you know, medicine. It could be about, you know, a lot of them are very business flavored, which is a whole separate conversation. But like, anyway, there's all these different like idea. And, and I think with poetry, you can do so much of the same, right? Like you play with it because as long as there's a tool in common, like language, um, you get the ability to do that. But it's also, I think, really important that, like you said, you know, there, there's, you know, just because you're getting to play in the sandbox, like you still have things like positionality and things like, you know, authorities that proceed that are that are like, you know, taking themselves as the authorities and, for example, a discipline or something like that. Um, that can feel very eggshelly, um, but you know, for, from your very, very first question, right? The spirit of play, like if that animates it, and no one is being, you know, ru ruining the fun, as it were, then I think that there's still this idea that like all of these sources are fair game. All of these sources can can tell us something that is poem worthy, you know. And I think that's something that just you just do incredibly in Light Up Swan um, and that your reader is going to feel um, very welcomed in. I just, you know, I think of titles like Rilke Phone Case. Um, I think of how, you know, Wikipedia appears and tweets and um, that there's this, uh, the, uh, I, I kind of wanted to say thin veil, but I don't think that's it. Um, you know, it's Rachel Zucker, who's a, a poet I just love, who talks about welcoming into contaminants. Um, and <laughs> I'm not sure I'd use the word contaminants, but I liked, I love the idea of like that your life filters through your poetry, that, that you know, that it just, you welcome it in, right? You don't try to exclude things. You don't, you know, I mean, you can, but, um, and there's like a whole, of course, kind of writing in terms of, writing in terms of constraint and, um, but, yeah, I think that's just something that it feels, it feels very new, 
like not that necessarily hasn't been done before, but that, you know, when you write in with new language, right, that it's your text is taking place at a, you know, a certain time um, and you're kind of acknowledging the historicity, you're acknowledging, you know, yourself in the world, your sources. I mean, I think it goes back to that comment that kind of had to do with archive, right? And, you know, you, you mentioned philosophers who don't name other philosophers. And I kind of laughed in my head because, of course, I think of a lot of male philosophers who don't acknowledge women's philosophy. And, you know, um, Alistair McIntyre, who's someone I've read a lot of, he never acknowledges Iris Murdoch's work. Um, where Iris Murdoch, of course, was expected to position her argument among three or four other men when, you know, and, and she kind of considered herself a man too, which I adore. Um, and she was included in like a book of British philosophers, it was male philosophers, and she's the <laughs> one included. And she's very genderqueer, very uh, gender fluid. Um, so it's interesting though, it is interesting who gets cited. So trying, you know, as much as I don't really want to exist in a gender binary, I also want to acknowledge that those powers are still absolutely um, around and prevalent, right? But you do such a beautiful job. And I think it does have to do with the idea of acknowledgement. Um, you know, that we see Laura Jensen's blog in your poems um, that you say, that's my cat drinking out of my plant water bucket. I apologize. If he, if he makes noises. I let him be in here because he seemed like he was in a quiet mood. Um, but yeah, do you have anything you wanted to say about that, Tom? I had I had other things I had written down for you, but um, in terms of questions, but. I think, oh. that's, a, I think that's a really wonderful observation. And I, I'm thinking about um, how, you know, like, cause I, when it came time to try to put Light Up Swan together, um, there was a question of like, kind of how to just do it at all like I, I it's it's one of the hardest things like that I feel like there's no roadmap for for sure um and like I, I think one of the things that I'm happiest with about the book was that the the choice to continue to use as the organizing principle this idea of like conversation um, that a lot of the poems that you know didn't have that piece so much didn't make it uh, as it were and like the ones that felt really crucially like they were talking to people who um it, talking to and about and with people who like I had needed to to get into poems and to to see what poems could do um like I, I remember very very vividly I did not uh cite this poet in the book I and I it's I think it's one of those things again I can't just look directly at it because it's such a like such a strong influence but like Dana Ward's book uh The Crisis of Infinite Worlds which the title poem of which there's that recording of him on YouTube reading it, um, which is just amazing. Like, I think, I think he recites it from memory and it's astounding because it's totally doing all those things that you're describing. It's like, I'm walking through the mall trying to understand my art I didn't understand. And then there's all the stuff about like a YouTube, like Crystal Cole is the leading line of the poem. And like, and then reading Crisis in Infinite Worlds is the book, like the squeakquel is in it, right? Like uh, all Green Onions makes like, there's a whole Green Onions like Fantasia and like that, I was like, yep, I remember reading that book, which is like 160 pages or something like that. Like it's, it feels like it's about to change your world and it totally did. I remember that and being like, yep, that's, that's what I would like. I'd like it to feel like, you know, this is very chattery kind of a thing. And I, I like that a lot. I like that effect. Um, you know, the Ducks Newburyport piece feels a little bit like that too in a different way. And, and I think that's the kind of like messy 
maximalism is a little un, feels a little unearned, but like the the messiness of that is is very much something I'd like to sit with and be in. Um, like all, letting all the like I realized when we were talking earlier, like there's also like ASLisms in the book. Like one of the book poems is titled uh, "Funny Zero, which is a sign like you know intensifying. That's not funny. It's like how funny is it? Zero, uh, you know. Like and there's like totally it's processing the same. You know I'm very not fluent in the ASL, but slowly learning and that's in there. That's that stuff will just always continue to refract and all these, you know, hopefully not generic. Is that the word? Uh, generative? Yeah, generative ways, if all goes well. You mentioned in um, the Kenyan Review Poetry Today feature with Ruben Quesada um, that your first draft of Light of Swan contained, among other things, an apologetic title. And that Ornithopter Press editor Mark Harris was instrumental in in your book's changes or birth. And I completely understand that um, poem order, which is probably the biggest edit that happened multiple times to what become like um, poem order has some kind of magic and I don't <laughs> understand it. Um, it's terribly difficult. I used to think it was very easy and now I don't. Um, but I, do, would you like to tell us the apologetic title or no? I was just curious. Yeah, absolutely. It was called uh, Sorry Again. And uh, I ended up, I had two manuscripts at that point when I sent them to Mark. So I sent him sorry again, which was, uh, I, Mark could say this much better. I, I wonder what it was like reading that the first time because it like has Ronsard translations in it. It has, like, it had like all this kind of wacky stuff. And, you know, like when Mark responded that he was interested in like working towards, towards a book, um, I, I was A, very excited, but I was like, you know, I think there's probably some poems in the other thing, which was at the time called Light Up Swan that would probably be better than some of what's going on here. Um, especially because I, I think translation is such beautiful work that I have not successfully historic or historically successfully done much of. Um, it's something I really like to try to do, but it's, you know, I felt like when I was, I was thinking of the idea of somebody holding my weird Ronsard translation, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. Exactly. Um, but it's also funny, like the thing that you said about poem ordering feeling like when I was when we were going through the uh, the Garden of Eden automata theory thing earlier, it, it's so funny because it feels to me like ordering poems is sort of like learning like a mathematical idea or like a, a tough concept where like it made sense. You remember how you went through it, like when you when it's really crystallized for you the learning process is recent. You could probably narrate like what got you there, et cetera. And then suddenly like a little bit removed from it, you're like, wait, how does it go? Like, I was like, I think I'm misstating what a twin state is. Like, I think I'm not quite right about that. Um, and it's funny, like you almost lose it, but it's obviously still there in the book's like actual order. And I'd be curious, like, especially to hear how long that process was for you. Cause for me, it felt interminable. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. At some point it begins feeling like that story about the man and the child that are walking on the road and they have one donkey and like the boys on the donkey and someone goes by and they're like, I can't believe your father isn't writing that. So the boy gets off and the father gets on. And then another person comes by and they're like, I can't believe you're making your child walk instead of writing. And then someone goes by and they're like, I can't believe you're riding the donkey. And so <laughs> it kind of felt like that a little bit because every reader had something different. I don't know, one of the things that kind of um, not bugs me, but it, it doesn't just sit well with me is the idea that 
I've heard this multiple times from multiple people. I'm not sure where it originates, but the idea that your book is a gallery and you should order it like paintings and walking through a gallery and it, it just feels too damn neat. It's not a gallery. It's something that's like constantly shifting. The rooms are changing. Sometimes you walk through it backwards. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just too, it's too nice a metaphor. It's too handy. It just doesn't work. Um, one of the things I've been working with um, with other writers lately in organizing um, their manuscripts is not doing the linear, like when you lay out, you print out all your palms and you lay them on the floor, you tape them to the wall. That linear, again, it just doesn't work for me. Um, so I've been trying columns, like picking way station palms that move across and then thinking about the poems that fun like funnel beneath them and that worked really well with one person's manuscript but you know it's probably wouldn't work with another you just I feel like it's having all these balls in the air and they're kind of falling a different way every single time and you still only have two hands and you've got to like catch them um and people are going to do that lots of different ways yeah, I, I really love the uh, the stations of the cross idea. Like I do stations in my classroom all the time, like and the idea of like moving from one thing to another thing and and having those. I think you I think you said way stations and like that's so yeah, to me, that's a, such a because, uh, you know, they can be such concretely different things, but there is a sense that, you know, we are progressing through them. Right. And like there is, you know, the stations of the cross were definitely progressing towards a very particular or along a very particular arc, but even that arc has stutters. Like I love, I love uh, the idea of like Jesus falls a second time. That's like that's a line that I've used in a poem, and that I am like, he had to fall a second time. Like what a what an interesting and like when I read poetry books, I love that moment when you like finally like you you might be muddling through the book, but like you recognize that first like callback or that first dip back into somewhere you've been before. Um, I was just reading uh, Chase for, for the Sealy Challenge, uh, Chase Twitchell's first book, which is just unfair. It's called uh, Northern Spy. It's like one of the best, like most amazing first books ever. And I just remember like, I think the first poem and it ends on a line like, I like painting more than poetry. I think that might just be it. Um, and it's it's like, and then of course, like the painting poem, the painting motif starts to like take shape. And I'm like, oh, you know, you just love that that feeling. And you do really, feel it happening, right? You feel the moving through the stations. That's that's so neat. I'm so glad you said that. That's so interesting because I never thought about stations of a cross. Like I just was thinking um, like, a, you know, way stations and then across and I never connected it to stations of the cross. And now I'm like, whoa. <laughs> um, Suddenly the stakes are, are much higher. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, but it is for having uh, two Catholics in a row on your podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a practicing Catholic at the moment. But, yeah. Yes, yes, I'm a, I'm very much a Protestant, but um, it's. I think I think Protestants. A lot of us have Catholic hearts. So, <laughs> um, this has just been incredible, Tom. Thank you so much. Um, would you like to turn now to a final poem to read for us? Or goodness knows you have some short poems. I don't know what you want to read, but you could always read. Um, I would I would love to if it's uh, okay. I have a poem that's coming out. It's a little bit longer. I don't know if that's all right. Um, but it's a poem that's going to be out in September uh, in Anvil Tongue, um, which is a publication that 
DC Wojcik uh, runs, and it's been a similar sort of editorial process getting uh, that this poem ready. Like he spent some time with it, and there was some back and forth, which was really valuable. Um, and so this is a poem that I feel like speaks to some of the things that we've talked about. Um, I'm just pulling it up now, uh, and it's called Zanatan. One. I grew up surrounded by trees, so I always thought lightning was hard to see, finding the exact bolt anyway in a full flash of sky above the canopies. Now where I live, storms can be contained over the mountain's shoulder, angry clouds hot wiring the earth, which is a whole different way of understanding thunder. Broad, but not total. Something you can cover with a fist or your favorite song, but who has just one of those anymore? One, I do. It's called October and it's by Jackson C. Frank. Here's a link, https colon slash slash y-o-u-t-u.be slash k9r-h-x-d-9-r-q-c-s. I don't think many people listen to that particular upload. The algorithm has buried it under other ones and covers. So when I see the view count go up, I'll wonder if maybe it's you, dear reader, listening. One. We're okay in the global mist of moonbeams. We're okay with the little blood of flowers. We're okay on the mountain, on the mountain. We're okay picking up the turtle. We're okay shepherding him over. We're okay with how he peed on us a little. We're okay and he is ambling toward the river. One, the longest I have ever been silent is nothing compared to the longest I will ever be silent. Don't worry, I've set my spirit to auto-loop poems by Georg Trockel in my inner voice forever when I die, so it won't be silent in the coffin or the urn. There will be deer, a sister, reds and greens and blues, and there won't be that rotten underline below Trockel's name. One. The longest I have ever been silent was a full performance of H.I.F. Bieber's Bieber's Mystery Sonatas, a.k.a. the Copper Engraving Sonatas, by Christina Day Martinson in Boston in 2017. My relationship was falling apart. Twin Peaks was about to come out, actually come back. I was about to ghost a whole organization of Maoists, and I lost all feeling in my legs. One. The Minimal by Theodore Retke has 3.2 stars on poemhunter.com, https colon slash slash www.poemhunter.com slash poem slash the hyphen minimal slash. Can't believe I dignified that with two links, two lines in this poem. Maybe so I can use this as a kind of penitent practice, beat myself over the head until I see 0.2 stars. One, purple balloons. One, it's brutal quiet on the pond, foggy water, fallen tree, the catfish making public their aversion to corn, Mr. Toad hopping the byways, baby deer becoming adolescent deer, becoming adult deer, becoming failed plums on the roadside. I love the male, not getting it, like a joke about motherhood. One, dragging the pond like in a cartoon, stick a stage hook cane in the mud and pull, free Merlin, disturb Retke's, quote, stone-deaf fishes, the sign fish cutting through the water like a bad idea. I ask my mother-in-law what she thinks of the phrase stone-deaf, both signs near the mouth. One, the warm sutures. One, 
Lately, I haven't been remembering my dreams like at all, so I'll invent one. Setting is your mom's house on Washington Street. You just got a giant spider and a snake and put them in the same glass prison. And when I ask you if that's advisable or okay, you laugh, spit cherry pits at me, and I pick them all up. I'm losing the breath control. I'm losing. One. A hind interrupts the parade of male animals and incomplete stars. The easiest place to find information about deer terminology is on hunting websites. My body is one of the purple balloons from Jack Spicer's book of magazine verse all cast off together into a raining sky, readily punctured, dew wet. One, mitered corners. One, we're okay hiding fathers in the rainbow. We're okay gathering costumery. We're okay with the whale-shaped laundry basket. We're okay putting almost nothing in it. We're okay telling stories to the swing set. We're okay wrist broken by the slide. We're okay and the cast comes off on Sunday. One, quote, ordinarily a dance in triple meter. Webern's Pasichalia is neither a dance nor in triple meter. That's it, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom, for sharing a brand new poem. It was beautiful. So listeners, thank you for listening to Of Poetry Podcast, episode three with poet Tom Snarski. To read more of Tom Snarski's work, visit neutralspaces.co slash Tom Snarski. To subscribe and rate of poetry podcast, visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts or of poetrypodcast.wordpress.com, where we link to poems, we will link to poems Tom read today, and to Light Up Swan. Do pick yourself up a copy of Tom's debut poetry collection. Thank you for listening.